Hey, good morning. You know, there's a lot of talk about leadership this time of year. After all, it was a, an election year, so we talk about leadership in the government. Uh, we can talk about leadership on Saturday afternoons. Those commentators talk about these young men who are leaders on their football team. We might talk about leadership in the home, that whole marriage roles conversation that we can have. We can even talk about leadership in the local church, like the role of function of a pastor, the staff, uh, deacons, teachers, things like that. Leadership is not necessarily all about control and authority because leadership expert John Maxwell says that leadership is influence. And when you have influence over another person or a group or a company or even a church, that makes you a leader. It's about influence that moves people to do things that they likely could not or would not have gotten done without proper leadership. I suppose a glaring example of biblical leadership and really the lack of leadership may be found in the book of Judges. There are two verses in particular that tell us that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They weren't following leaders. By the way, Proverbs offers a little commentary when it comes to people doing what is right in their own eyes. It says in Proverbs 12:15, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. And then Proverbs 21:2, it says every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. In this Titus passage, verses 6 through 11, that. Uh, we think about what Paul is doing here. He's really coaching Titus on leadership. We can learn really a lot about what we read in Scripture if only we'll take the time to actually read the text, understand it, and then seek ways to apply it. And so here, Paul describes church leaders. And I just wanted to talk about a few things before I get into my proven, what proven stands for. But uh, the first thing that you read in the text is glaring. It says that leaders are supposed to be blameless or above reproach. You know, their work for the church as well as their interactions with others outside the church are to be of such moral quality that they never bring shame or in any way disgrace the body of Christ or the name of Jesus. Above reproach, however, does not mean someone is without sin. We're all going to fall. No Christian lives an entirely sinless life, nor will we until Jesus takes us home. But being above reproach means that the leader's life is free from sinful habits or behaviors or speech that would hinder his setting the highest Christian standard and a model for the church to imitate. Remember that leadership is influence, and there are some things that can hinder that influence. In the same way, a leader must not give reasons for those outside the church to challenge his reputation or his integrity. Being above reproach means that no one can honestly bring a charge or accusation against the Christian leader because he is above reproach. It also says husband of one wife. I dare say that this does not mean that all church leaders must be married or even male. And probably it means that the person is going to be faithful to the vows that he made to his spouse. And, frankly, that he's not a polygamist. It also says that he has children who believe. Now, this does not mean that a church leader must be a father. 
or have children who are walking closely with the Lord. How many of us have raised our kids in the church? We've done everything that we knew biblically we needed to do for our children, yet they today have nothing to do with the church. Maybe they have nothing to do with God himself. At some point, all human beings must take their own decisions. They've got to make those decisions about who they are going to serve. What I mean is that since children have what we call soul competency before God, they have direct access to Him. Their rebellion and wild nature cannot disqualify a faithful church leader from effective service to God and disqualify him for Christian service. You know, Paul throws in some negative qualities in this passage of Scripture. He says that these leaders should not be accused of dissipation, which really is overindulgent, immorality, depravity, corruption, or even rebellion. Basically, the leader is not, overbear not overbearing, not quick-tempered, given to drunkenness, violence, or dishonest gain. But then Paul adds some things on the plus side. The leader is to be hospitable. He or she loves what is good, is self-controlled, holy, disciplined, holding firmly to sound teaching and doctrine. So as we look at leadership today, leaders are to be proven. And I'm going to take a look at six qualities of proven leadership and, and how we can not, not only be proven leaders, but we can be proven disciples of Jesus. Now, the first one is that the proven leader is passionate. He has a passion for Jesus, his mission, the great commandment, the great commission. Passion is really not a word that we use often in our culture, unless it's in the romantic sense of being passionate with or about your spouse. But the word is very accurate when it comes to our connection with Jesus. The word passion fits right in with God's greatest commandment, which we find in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, to love God with all of our being. Mark includes four characteristics, heart, mind, soul, and strength. Let me share some guidance from Scripture about how we might be able to awaken that passion in your life. And the first thing is to get to know God. It goes without saying that we cannot love someone that we do not know. It's, it's the place to get started, to get to know God, is really to find out what He has done for you. Before the command to love God is given in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, the statement is made, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. One aspect of that statement is that the God of the Bible is unique. And the better we get to know Him and what He is like, the easier it will be for us to love Him with our whole being. This also involves getting to know what He has done for us. Again, before the list of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, God states in verse 3 about what He has done by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. Likewise, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, familiar passage, the command to offer our lives as a living and holy sacrifice is prefaced by the word, therefore, 
a word meant to remind us of all the mercies of God toward us recorded in the previous 11 chapters. To grow in love with God, a person needs to get to know Him. God has revealed Himself in nature. We read about that in Romans chapter 1. But He has revealed so much more in His written word. We need to make daily Bible study a personal habit. As much as a part of our lives as we eat food every day. It's important to remember that the Bible is more than a book. It's actually God's love letter to us revealing himself through the centuries, especially through the ministry of Jesus Christ, his one and only unique son. We must read the Bible asking his Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts through what he wants us to learn from him that day. The second thing we can do to renew or ignite some passion for God is we need to pray like Jesus did. When we examine the life of Jesus, as well as like Daniel and others who had a passion for God in the Old Testament, we find that prayer was a vital ingredient in their relationship with God. You cannot imagine a man and woman growing in love for one another without communicating. So prayer cannot be neglected without expecting your love for God to grow cold. Prayer is a part of the armor that we use against our greatest enemies. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18 tells us that. We may have a desire to love God, but we will fail in our walk with God if we do not include prayer. Now, the third thing we can do to renew or ignite some passion for God is we need to walk closely with God now. You know, Daniel and his three friends chose to obey God and refused to compromise even in the food they ate. We find that in Daniel chapter 1. The others who were brought from Judah into Babylon as prisoners, when they must have caved in and they were never heard from again. When the Jewish prisoners of war had their convictions challenged in a far greater way, it was these three who stood up alone for God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In order to ensure that we will be passionate for God later, we need to walk with Him now and begin to obey him even in the smallest details of life. You know, Peter learned this the hard way by following Jesus at a distance, it says. Rather than identify he himself more closely with Christ before that temptation to deny him. We read about that in Luke chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter 22, verse 54. God says that where a man's treasure is, there his heart will be also. As we invest our lives in God through serving Him and being on the receiving end, maybe even a persecution, our treasure will increasingly be with Him, and so will our hearts. Now, the fourth thing we can do to, to renew some passion for God is to eliminate the competition. You know, Jesus said it was impossible to have two masters. That's Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. We are always tempted to love the world. Those things that please our eyes, that make us feel good about ourselves, those things that gratify our earthly desires. We read about that in 1 John chapter 2. James tells us that embracing the world and its friendship is enmity or hatred toward God. It amounts to spiritual adultery. 
James chapter 4, verse 4. We need to get rid of some things in our lives that compete for our allegiance. Could be friends who lead us the wrong way. It could be things that waste our time and our energy that keep us from serving God more faithfully. It could be pursuits of popularity or possessions and or maybe even physical and emotional gratifications. God promises that if we pursue Him, He will not only provide for our needs, that's Matthew 6, 33, but He will give us the desires of our hearts. That's Psalm 37, verses 4 and 5. So leaders are to be people who are passionate about Jesus and His mission and about spiritual disciplines. The second thing in a proven leader deals with relationships. Relationships resulting in accountability and application in the context of small groups. A small group at church consists of a handful of believers who are connected by our common faith in Jesus. They meet together for Bible study, service projects, encouragement, prayer, and fellowship. As churches grow larger, these small groups become even more important because it helps people to stay connected to one another. The goal of a biblically faithful church is to create authentic community through our small groups ministry which fosters discipleship and prayer and connection and accountability. The number of participants in a small group is generally limited so that deep and long-lasting relationships and openness and accountability are cultivated and maintained. The model for small groups can go all the way back to Acts chapter 2, where these believers got together and they met in homes to eat, have fellowship, they took communion, they would read the apostles' letters and discuss them, and they would pray, and they would challenge each other to keep the faith. A small group that functions correctly is really a little church within a larger part of the congregation. It is within these small groups that the one another's of Scripture take place. When the Bible tells Christians to bear one another's burdens, as in Galatians 6.2, or pray for one another, as in James 5.16, or accept one another, as in Romans 15.7, or forgive one another, Colossians 3.13, it implies that we're going to be in close relationships and close proximity, proximity to other believers. On a practical level, if a church of several hundred, the pastor cannot visit every sick person or take a meal to every brand new mother. Regardless of how friendly or outgoing a church member may be, he or she cannot personally know the entire congregation when we see them only for one hour on a Sunday morning. Community doesn't happen when we're looking at the back of someone else's head. Community happens in circles, in circles rather than in rows. And so the pastor and the staff rely upon small group leaders and teachers to take care of its members in their group. They are the shepherds of a small flock of members who are in their charge. Now, in many ways, the first century church was a series of organized small groups. They all studied the same scriptures, like in Acts 17.11. They read the same letters from the apostles. and They obeyed the same standards for behavior and worship uh, within the community and the lifestyle, things like that. 
They met in homes throughout the week, as we read in Acts 2.46. They established close personal relationships with each other. When modern church groups strive for the same unity, they are fulfilling the expectations that Jesus has for his church. The O in our proven strategy is for obedience. The leader, the proven leader is obedient. Obedience to the commands of Christ and the teachings we find in the Bible. The Bible has a lot to say about obedience. In fact, obedience is an essential part of the Christian faith. Jesus himself was obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Philippians chapter 2 verse 8. And so if Jesus was not obedient, we would not have the gospel. Obedience is that essential. For Christians, the act of taking up our cross and following Christ means obedience. The Bible says that we show our love for Jesus by obeying him in all things. He says in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. A Christian who is not obeying the commands of Christ can rightly be asked this question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? We read that in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Obedience is defined as dutiful or submissive compliance to the commands of one in authority. Using that definition, we see the elements of biblical obedience. The first thing is dutiful. It means that we are under obligation to obey God, just as Jesus fulfilled his duty to the Father by dying on the cross for our sin. The next word is submissive. It indicates that we must yield our will to the will of God. Commands speak of Scripture. These commands that are in there, they are clearly presented as instructions that we are to obey. These commands of Jesus, which I have been a student of over the past decade, these are those grammatical imperatives that must be obeyed. They are not suggestions. So it is important for us to be obedient in those commands. And then finally, the one in authority, that is God himself whose authority is total and unmistakable. For the Christian, obedience means complying with everything God has commanded. It is our duty and our privilege to do so. Now, having said that, it's important to remember that our obedience to God is not solely a matter of duty. We obey Him because we love Him, John 14, 23. Also, we understand that the spirit of obedience is just as important as the act of obedience. We serve the Lord in humility, singleness of heart, and we serve him in love. It's more than duty. If we love God, we will obey him. Now, we won't be perfect in our obedience, but our desire is to submit to the Lord and demonstrate our love through the good works that we do. When we love God and obey Him, we naturally love one another and obedience to God's commands will make us light and salt in a dark and tasteless world. We read about that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. The V in our proven strategy is to be victorious. The leader is victorious. Victory over sin through ongoing sanctification and integrity. The key to victory is 
in our struggles over sin lies not in ourselves, but in God himself and his faithfulness to us. The Lord is near to all those who call upon him. We read about that in Psalm 145, verse 18. There's no getting around it that we all struggle with sin. Romans 3.23 Even the great apostle, Paul, grieved over his ongoing struggle with sin in his life. We read about it in Romans chapter 7, verses 18-20. through 20. Paul's struggle with sin was so real that he cried out, What a wretched man that I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Verse 24. Yet the very next breath, he answers his own question and he calms our fears. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our key to victory in our struggle over sin, it lies in the promise of God himself. You know, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, perhaps you have memorized this at some point in your life. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that, 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 that you may be able to endure it. This may go without saying, but if God provides a way of escape, it seems to me that victory over sin is a matter of making better choices with the help of the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of every believer. The proven disciple and the proven leader will have this desire to please God in his or her life and have victory that will come over a lifetime of obedience to God's word. When we understand the battle and the enemy's battle strategy, we can better live victoriously in this fallen world. Now, the E in our proven strategy stands for eternal focus. What I mean by that, an eternal focus resulting in evangelism and the example of Jesus. Personal evangelism seems to be a scary thing in a lot of believers. But you know, it's just simply the act of a person sharing the gospel, the good news with someone else. We're called to be witnesses. Witnesses uh, tell what they saw, what they heard, what they know. They don't talk about things they have not experienced. There are so many different methods of personal evangelism out there. And it's really a hot topic within Christianity. I mean, there's books, classes, seminars. They're all dedicated to the subject of witnessing, soul winning, or helping others find salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. But not every method is effective or really biblical supportive. There's so many member, uh, you know, presentations that can be memorized. But you know, Dr. John MacArthur even said, Jesus would have failed personal evangelism class in almost every Bible college and seminary I know. And that, there's a lot of truth in that. Jesus did not have a memorized presentation. He dealt with people individually, and, and that's how he evangelized. Now, according to a 2016 Barna survey, 73% of Americans claim to be Christians. However, after applying scriptural tests to those claims, only around 31% actually qualify as practicing Christians. <laughs> I love that phrase. Uh, is there any other kind of Christian? You, can you be a non-practicing Christian? I, I dare say no. 
And so we have to all be practicing Christians. So clearly what has passed for personal evangelism for the last several generations has not been effective. It's time for something new. and Not a new message, but a new way of reaching people for Jesus. And I have another acrostic in here, but I'm not going to show it on the screen. But I have taught this before. I call it the blessed strategy. I call it how to bless your neighbors because we want to impact and influence our neighbors for the gospel. Well, how do we do that? B-L-E-S-S. Bless them. First is begin with prayer. I mean, pray for people that you know need to come to Jesus and how you can better interact with them. So pray for them. Let the Holy Spirit guide this. The L is for listen. When you're in conversation with people, discover their needs, their wants, their desires, uh, their goals in life, their struggles, things like that. You're going to find out a lot about people. And then eat with somebody. That's the E. Eat with them. Share a meal. People open up and talk about their lives over a meal. The first S stands for serve. You've, you've done a lot of listening. Try to find some way to serve them in some way, not trying to get something out of it. And then you have uh, the second S, which is story. You, you want to earn the right to tell either your story, your testimony, or his story, which is the plan of salvation. And so remember that we are not responsible for their response, only for our obedience. And so if you passionately and thoughtfully presented the gospel and clearly they understood it, but they still walked away from it, we are not responsible for that reaction, but only for the level of, of obedience involved in that presentation. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 tells us that we will be his witnesses. The only choice that we have is are we going to be a good witness or a bad witness? Now, the N in our acrostic here for, for proven is for nurture. Nurture. Leaders nurture others in the faith through example, teaching, and in their leadership. Now, as I think about nurturing others, I naturally think about family and parenting. While the Bible has much to say about physical parenting, we are also called to spiritual parenting. When others, when we, when we think about what God has done for others, in particular like the Israelites coming out of bondage, He communicated with them and told them and commanded them to teach their children what He had done for them. He desired that the the generations to come would continue to uphold all his commands. They were supposed to instill that in the next generation. One generation, when they failed to teach God's laws to the next generation, a society quickly declines. Parents have not only a responsibility to their children, but they have an assignment from God to impart his values and truth in the lives of those around us. That's proven leadership. While the home is primarily the focus for raising children, I mean, we do have Sunday school and VBS, but those are not enough. Children need to be brought up in Christ in the home. The church can be a place to help nurture those people around us. And it's not just for kids. I mean, women get together on Tuesdays here at King's Grant. Men get together at Denny's on the first and third Wednesdays. The noble men meet in the fellowship hall for breakfast and, and for Bible study on several Saturdays throughout the year. Leaders are nurtured and actively nurture others. And the spiritual growth and the nurturing never ends. Not until Jesus calls us home. And so we have these six characteristics that I call 
how to be a proven leader, a proven disciple of Jesus. A lost world is watching us, and they're waiting for us to prove what to prove to be who we say that we are. And so remember that being a leader and to be above reproach is, does not mean that we're perfect, but that we live a life in such a way that no one can honestly say that our behavior, language, or actions would bring shame on the name of Jesus or his church. Maybe you heard something today and you need to make some changes in your life. I'd love to talk with you about it. We're here to help. No one does this church thing all by themselves. At, at King's Grant, you know, we, we first of all are a community of faith. You can grow into a disciple and a leader that God desires for you to be. And the church can help you with that. You are not alone. And so, as you, we go to the end of this message, I, I just want you to join me in prayer and to think about the things that you've been presented with today. So let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, this time is yours. You know our hearts, our motivation, our attitudes. You know where we fall short better than ourselves. May we rekindle our passion for you, your word, and the mission that you have in our lives. Help us to live a life of significance and influence. Help us to know your will and your ways and to give us the courage to stand up for the cause of Christ. Lord Jesus, may you be glorified through your proven people and proven leaders. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thank you for being a part of this worship and Bible study time. If we can help you in any way, please reach out to us through the church website. You can go to kgbc.us slash more. If you live in the area of Virginia Beach, and we just invite you to stop in for a visit on a Sunday at 930 in the morning as a traditional service, and at 11, it's a bit more modern. Uh, just You can also join us uh, on Wednesday nights. You can go to kgbc.us slash midweek and get information about that. Now, until next time, thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you very soon.